You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. in Hollywood, many films are inspired by greatness that came before them. I'm not talking about remakes, but rather instances where directors look at a certain film and think, let's just take certain elements of what made this film great and play with them. Nowhere is that more true for me personally than with The Great Escape and Chicken Run. The Great Escape had long been a favorite of mine, so when Chicken Run was released in 2000, I was able to appreciate so much more of it than did our kids, for whom we'd purchased the VHS. From Ginger bouncing her ball against the solitary lock-up walls, to her plan to take the entire coop over the fence versus the Great Escape's tunneling plan, there was so much about the film that spoke to us as adults. To this day, it is one of my wife's favorite films. Not favorite animated films. It's one of her favorite films of all time. Directors Peter Lord and Nick Park have spoken about how the Great Escape influenced a lot of Chicken Run. And it's only from repeat viewings that you come to appreciate just how much. Now, months ago, we recorded our Steve McQueen episode, and it was very hard not to add The Great Escape. However, I'd already been hatching the idea <laughs> for this episode, and so held off figuring that we'd have a lot more fun doing this. Now, before I let you take point on The Great Escape, do you remember when your introduction to both of these films was? Uh, Great Escape, I actually watched in high school. Uh, a lot of my uh, teachers, I was in some higher level classes, enjoyed showing us classic films, stuff like Great Escape, you know, Apocalypse Now. And that's really where my love of a lot of these films comes from. And yeah, Great Escape is definitely one of the ones I remember so clearly from that era of my life. Right. What about Chicken Run? Uh, Chicken Run, I kind of passed off. Because when it first came out, I was like, oh, you know, I don't care about some animated movie. It, it wasn't until several years later it was on like hbo or something i watched it and it was you know that flash of oh my god you know catching all those references was amazing the see again there's like before my wife and i got together again i was a huge movie fan i just we watched everything and i and i as i mentioned before i was lucky enough i had a really good buddy and we used to get together and watch films like an entire weekend just would disappear or watch nothing but movies. And then while I was in high school as well, for, for quite a bit of high school, I actually worked graveyard shift at a convenience store that, of course, rented out VHSs. And so I was taking home movies constantly, constantly, constantly and watching all kinds of films. And so when my wife and I were first together and and the kids and all that, I worked at Blockbuster for for quite a while, actually. And so, again, I was bringing home movies and it really it got the kids into watching movies a lot more they they did before but we really watched a lot of movies at that time and there was a lot of good movies that were coming around that time now fast forward to 2000 i'm long since gone from the blockbuster job but we're still again watching all of these movies with 
with the kids and anybody who has kids, especially if there's a fairly big age gap, you can appreciate that you're watching a fairly wide range of shows. And especially if you got boys and girls kind of thing, there's not everybody can agree what their favorites are or what they'd like to see. So we would watch a, a variety of different things. Luckily though, the kids all just enjoyed whatever we would put on. They were really open to watching a lot of different types of shows. So when this came out, I mean, we'd already been watching a lot of, you know, Studio Ghibli stuff and a lot of really, there was some good Disney stuff coming out at the time too. And stuff that we were rewatching from Disney and DreamWorks and stuff like that. And so like when this came out, knowing that again, we're looking at the Wallace and Gromit boys, we're going like, wow, like this is going to be great. And when we watched it with the kids, I'm not joking. Like the adults were enjoying it more than the kids. Like they're laughing at the funny stuff that's going on, but we're remembering all of the references and appreciating the subtlety of a lot of the, the humor in it. And because again, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of the British humor in it and you live in Canada. There's a lot of British shows that show up that we watch that we grew up with. So a lot of that, is something that we laugh at probably even more than an American audience would just because again, it's that dry British humor that we are so used to here as well. So again, when it, it came out, it was a, we watched it immediately, bought it immediately thereafter <laughs> and have seen it so many times now that again, it's one of those movies that the entire family can quote lines from by heart at moment's notice. Yeah. Like, I almost don't understand why I didn't watch Chicken Run when it first came out. I, I guess, I don't know, maybe the advertising didn't appeal to me or whatever because, like you, I had loved Wallace and Gromit. I thought that style of comedy was hilarious and just – I I can't remember far enough back to why I didn't bother to watch Chicken Run for so many years. Yeah. One of the most telling things about how phenomenal it was too because it was very highly rated when it first came out was that there was a huge push – to get it nominated for best film of the I remember year. that, yeah. And they wouldn't do it. But it's because of them that the following year, the best animated film category was introduced at the Oscars, and that's when Trek won. So that is very telling of just how phenomenal and well-received it was. It wasn't just in terms of it being, oh, it's just a kid's movie. No, it's a movie that everyone should watch kind of thing. It's kind of astonishing that there was no best animated category. Yeah, really. When you look at the wealth of movies, animated movies that came before this that were deserving of that. Yeah, it is very surprising. Okay, so how about we start with The Great Escape and then move on to Chicken Run? All right. Great Escape came out in 1963, directed by John Sturgis, who was, of course, a favorite of ours for also being the director of Magnificent Seven. Interestingly, it's based on a book of the same name that was written in 1950 uh, by a man named Paul Brickhill, who actually was one of the guys in the story. It's based on a true story of a POW camp in Germany in World War II, and this guy was one of the lookouts for the tunnel digging that went on there. Now, the movie, of course, made some changes to the story and the characters, shifted the timeline around a bit, and noticeably made – pretty much everybody in the movie uh, British with a few supporting Americans. But overall, it was still 
accurate to at least the the feeling of what actually had happened. <laughs> Something I thought you would like, Roger, is that uh, the actual Tunnel King, uh, who was the Charles Bronson role, was Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> a guy yeah. named Wally Floody. And they actually brought him back to be a technical advisor on the film to give it that authenticity that it really needed to make it special. The, what's telling about how great this movie is, is when you watch the special features on this and they're talking to him or referencing some of the things that he said, being on the set, he mentioned just how like he, he it was authentic and he could tell them that it was authentic because he was having nightmares again. And Oof. when you're watching the the film, because of when it was filmed and because they had to the, – the manner in which films were done then, there had to be some levity. It couldn't all be depressing, especially when you look at what the actual ending is and things like that. I mean it, it was war and yet you still need to make it lighthearted enough at moments so that it's not – it's it has those comedic moments. But – so when you're watching it, you're thinking, well, it can't be that accurate and whatnot. But when they spoke to this guy and he was saying, yeah, no, you, you, you've got it right. This is right. Yeah, there are some things that are off and it's, you know, different season and it's the, the actors aren't there's there's a lot more Americans than there actually were there. But they need the Americans for American movie audiences and things like that. But he said, like, it's it brings chills to him. And especially when he was going down into the tunnel while they were doing it as well and things like that. And he was saying just how much it was bothering him to, to, to be in that environment again. That's when you realize, yeah, they, they really hit the nail on the head with that one. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the cast in this movie, it's astonishing. Like we talked about how great the cast was in Towering Inferno. Honestly, it's nothing compared to the <laughs> the talent they got for this one. Of course, starting with Steve McQueen, uh, Captain Virgil Hiltz, the cooler king, as he became known. And it's interesting that you know McQueen is such a memorable part of this movie and has so many iconic scenes here and is really the lead actor for so many points. But honestly, Hiltz has very little to do with the overall storyline. Very little. I mean, you get a lot more from the... From the American standpoint, which again wasn't present, but they they put in James Garner, yeah, is so much more important. And we're huge Garner fans, like huge freaking Garner fans. And so it was fun watching this again and seeing just how important he is and how how pivotal pivotal his character is in so many different scenes. Yeah, Hiltz doesn't get a lot of screen time, but every time he's on the screen, he makes it count. Oh, yeah, They're all yeah. very memorable. Well, it's McQueen again. Yeah. Uh, we also have Richard Attenborough, who we previously talked about in The Sand Pebbles, legendary actor, playing squadron leader Roger Bartlett, uh, better known as Big X, the mastermind behind the entire breakout. And he was so great. In this. Everybody was great, but a lot of the stuff, especially near the end of the movie with him being on the run from the Nazis, he, he just... Like his facial expressions and that, you know, those eyes of his, it was really great. It's one of those performances where you look back and you can honestly say there's, there was no improving on it. There, it was flawless beginning to end. And like you said, heart wrenching at points, like you could feel everything that he's going through. Mm -hmm. uh, we had James Donald as Group Captain Ramsey, who is the senior officer and the liaison between the prisoners and the Nazis. Interestingly, like he didn't have much of a motion picture career. He was largely a stage actor and did a lot of stuff in England. But he did this and Bridge on the River Kwai. 
which I mean are two of the most iconic yeah. World War II movies of all time. <laughs> and here's another character that some actors occupy their their presence occupies a scene just by sheer virtue of who they are. You know, like McQueen, he doesn't have to act big and loud and boisterous to just occupy a space much larger than himself. And that's this guy. I mean, when Donald is doing those scenes where he's talking to the, um, what was the name of the guy again? Um, uh, the the Commandant? Yeah, the Commandant. I can't remember the name. But uh, when he's talking to him. Von Luger? Yeah, whether it's at the beginning or later on. He just steals those scenes. His presence is unbelievable. You, especially at the end, like that heart wrench. You feel it. It's just he does such an amazing job for the the little screen time he has. He owns it. Mm-hmm. And like you said, James Garner is huge in this movie. Uh, a number of movies to his credit, uh, as well as his iconic roles in Maverick and The Rockford Files as uh, Lieutenant Robert Henley, the Scrounger. And what I thought was really cool about this casting was he was actually he actually served during the Korean War, and he was a scrounger during the Korean War not <laughs> not not in a prisoner camp but just in the regular military camps. And I, I have to imagine he carried that skill set over to this role. <laughs> well, he's a smooth talker, so you can see it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite characters in the film was Donald Pleasance uh, playing Lieutenant Colin Blythe, the forger. Yeah. And uh, he's just a favorite actor of mine uh, with his roles as Dr. Loomis in the Halloween films, as well as Blofeld uh, during You Only Live Twice. And again, another true to life casting. He was actually a POW during World War II as a member of the Royal Air Force. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then, of course, you have Charles Bronson. We talked about him again in The Magnificent Seven. He's also in The Dirty Dozen. His iconic role in Death Wish as Lieutenant Danny Valinsky, the Tunnel King. And again, you have that parallel to real life. In the movie, Danny was claustrophobic, very ironic for somebody who spends all of his time in small tunnels underground. So was Bronson. Really? Yes. I didn't know that either. And then one of the other notable castings is uh, James Coburn, who, again, we've mentioned in The Magnificent Seven. You think the director had some favorite actors to work with? <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. James Coburn was really underused, like mm-hmm. seriously underused in this movie, which is too bad because we know and love him. But also the freaking accents. Oh, I, I know they <laughs> wanted to put in American actors for the appeal and box office hits and things like that but to then make them do the accents that are so horrible and and like my wife and i were watching the and thinking why not just make them canadian you know (laughs) they wouldn't have to wrestle with these accents they could just say they're from toronto or somewhere and no one would know those but but yeah because also charles bronson's accent is yeah, I, I don't know what he was going for there. <laughs> yeah, like those two, if they could have just killed the accents and just let them be Canadian something. Because there was a ton of Canadians in there. Mm-hmm. Canadians, the Australians. I mean, there was, was a number of nationalities. Yeah, there was a, lo- a lot of Commonwealth countries. So, yeah, make them Canadian. No one will know. But, mm-hmm. no, they had to give them those freaking weird – like Coburn is supposed to be an Australian. I heard Australian accent maybe once or twice, and even then it was a little flimsy. Yeah. And, and those are just the most notable members of the cast. I mean, there you could go on and on discussing oh, yeah. Yeah. every member of the cast and how they all had huge careers. And I, they, 
there's just so many memorable characters, even ones that had small roles really yep. stood out in this movie. Yep. Yeah, so as I said, the film itself takes place during World War II, 1943, where the Germans have put together a new high-security camp where they think it's going to be a great idea to gather together all of the high-risk prisoners, all the ones who had tried to break out multiple times previously, put them in the most unescapable prison ever, and everything will work out fine. <laughs> but as they go on to explain, you know, these are officers, so they can't just execute them. You know, they have value to get the German prisoners back as well. And they're treated with a certain level of respect by the commandant uh, played by Hans Messimer, uh, who was actually a really big German actor but never really did much outside of Germany. And it's the prisoners' duty to try and escape so that the Germans will spend manpower that could otherwise be dedicated to the battle just searching through the countryside looking for them. So it's a really interesting – interplay between the two officers like those scenes where they're just sitting in front of the desk talking had a lot of drama to them yeah yeah i agree what was interesting about that too is again watching the the extras on the dvd for this where they are talking to some of the actual soldiers that were in that camp that survived and they were it's, it's funny because again when us here this generation now you think about if we were captured in a war right now, whether it be in the Middle East or anywhere else kind of thing, if we get captured and we're trying to escape, we're trying to escape because we want to get the hell out of there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not to make their job harder. We want to live. We want to escape that hell and just live. But no, these guys see it as their duty as officers to continually try to escape to make it harder. And and they didn't insert that into the movie as a, a made-up plot point. The soldiers said that's what it was. You got out and it was your sworn duty to make it as hard as possible for them and divert attention. And, and it did. It took away hundreds of thousands of man-hours searching all over the place for them and hunting them down and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And like I said, those office scenes were so tense and dramatic and yeah. it ratcheted up to the next level once uh, Bartlett came in being escorted by the Gestapo, you know, the German secret police who basically threatened if he tries to escape again, he will be executed on site. And the scenes involving the commandant and the Gestapo where you see the difference in ideals, how – yes, they're both, quote, bad guys. You know, they're all serving, you know, Hitler and all that. But there's a certain amount of honor to the commandant that – I don't want to say it makes him likable, but at least partially you can respect him as a person. <laughs> like it's, well, it's really hard to, to kind of descri describe. It's not really likable, but but he's going out of his way. He understands they're going to keep trying, mm -hmm. but he's going out of his way to do it in such a way that, like you said, he's being respectful of of them. And that's another thing that they discussed as well, how there was this type of camaraderie between the soldiers because it was this weird little place in and of itself that was removed so far away from any of the action. And because of the manner in which they, they, they treated each other, there was this weird kind of kinsmanship between them, understanding that you're their soldiers on opposite sides kind of thing. And he portrays that 
like you said, very well to the point of sometimes being likable to the point of when the Gestapo does go there, you go, well, these are the bad guys. These are the real bad guys. And, uh, and so, yeah, no, he, he was phenomenal, especially at the end with him too. Some of the scenes are like, wow, he, he pulled it off beautifully. Mm-hmm. And especially early on at the beginning of the movie, like the first hour they're in camp, they're already trying to escape, you know, trying to blend in with the Russian workers, trying to sneak out with the the tree branches, you know, staking out the, the fences and whatnot. And it's one of those things where it's such an obvious plan. Theoretically, they, they assumed it wouldn't work, but it's within them to just try every way imaginable. And that really sets up a, a lot of the feeling that you get for the prisoners throughout the rest of the film. Yeah. Especially once we right off the bat, we get hilts with against Steve McQueen when Archibald Ives, the mole, the little Irish guy, was he, I think Scottish something. Yeah. I think he was Scottish. Yeah. He was Scottish. They, they develop a camaraderie by causing so much trouble on their first day. They get thrown into the cooler, their solitary isolation, and they, they form a bond in there. And you can see that McQueen, I'm sorry, Hiltz has been through this so many times. You know, he knows what he's doing. He has his stupid baseball <laughs> and his glove. But Ives, you can see, and great acting by, I didn't get his name down. Who was it here that played that? Uh, Angus Lenny, who just, you could tell with each scene he was in, he was getting more unstable and closer and closer to cracking. And again, it's a small role, but he had a powerful performance. Yeah, yeah, right from the get-go. Because again, McQueen is playing it cool right from the beginning and like right to the point of when he's being taken in and taking the guard's keys and things like that. He's being very much Steve McQueen in this role. But the, the, the character of of the mole is that, that twitch is almost right from the get go and wanting to make sure that he's having that constant conversation as well with, with hilts and things like that. And then, each time they come out and go back in, it's like, yeah, he's going to lose it soon. Mm-hmm. So while they're in there, they're in there. God, I, you'd think after so many years of doing this job, it'd be better at talking. <laughs> while they're in the cooler, uh, you get the rest of the team coming up with their grand plan where Bartlett wants to get 250 prisoners out through three separate tunnels that they're all going to dig at the same time. And the bulk of this middle of this movie is just this wonderful cat and mouse game between the prisoners and the guards having to be surreptitious about everything they're doing, be it you know, using choir <laughs> practice to cover up the sound of them hammering, spreading you know, the dirt into gardens, all the stuff that they were pilfering and stealing from the prison, hidden panels in the walls. I, I like we say, it's it was a lot like some of our favorite stuff in heist movies where it's just stuff that you wouldn't expect. And the way they go about it was hilarious to watch and so enjoyable. I think one of the things that's important to note too, at this point is that while most of the characters were kind of a blend of several real soldiers that were in these camps, Mm -hmm. the character for Bartlett, Bartlett was pretty much one guy, a a real guy. And he was the one that was pretty much in charge of the tunnels being built and all of that. And he was the one that everybody to this day, when they made those, those documentaries that I watched still speak so fondly and with so much respect for this man's intelligence. And he was fairly young too, in reality, like this was a smart, smart guy. 
Mm-hmm. This is a man whose entire life was dedicated to getting other people out. Yeah. He didn't care so much about himself. You know, he was just kind of ancillary to the escape. But his main goal was to get as many of his, his comrades out as possible. Yeah. And, and we get to the point where, of course, Hiltz is let out. And Hiltz and Ives have several escape attempts throughout the film. And Bartlett approaches Hiltz of, on one of your escape attempts, just we need – recon of the surrounding countryside we don't know where anything is beyond this tree line and of course hiltz is like well you know how are you going to get that information once i'm out (laughs) yeah but then we have the great scene where it's the fourth of july and the three american characters make their moonshine and to go around the camp singing yankee doodle dandy it's it's a huge celebration until the germans find one of the tunnels and that's where you finally get the scene where ives cracks he just runs for the fence, gets gunned down. It's it, You go from such a jubilant high to this, you know, one of the favorite characters in the movie being killed off. It's fantastic direction, I have to say that much. It was one of those where, at, at least every time I, I see it, I, I feel the same way. You know it's coming. Even the first time you're watching this, you know this is coming. The, the writing's on the wall kind of thing or on the fence. And yet still when it happens, it still is gripping and it's still one of those moments where it's – you can't help but think, damn, I would have liked to have seen him longer in the movie kind of thing because you have formed this bond with the character already. Well, it's one of those things as many times as I've seen the movie, it still gets me because – Two minutes before he gets gunned down, it's one of the high yeah. moral points of the entire movie. And it's yeah, it's great filmmaking, but yeah. it's one of those things that just sticks with you, man. Yeah. So, of course, Hiltz decides at that point he'll, he'll make a run under the fence and gets out no problem. <laughs> and I love it when he comes back uh, being escorted in. Uh, who was it that mentioned like, oh, I didn't think they'd get him. And Bartlett goes, oh, he didn't get caught. Yeah, he got caught on purpose to, yeah. to bring the information back because finally Hiltz was on board with the plan and knew how important the, the escape was. So when we get to the actual escape, everything imaginable goes wrong. <laughs> Danny's claustrophobia is causing him to freak out down in the tunnels. Once they finally poke through to the surface, they find they're 20 feet short of the tree line, which actually did happen in yeah. the real life escape. So and with everything that went wrong, they only managed to get 76 out. And you have this entire third act of the movie, which was almost entirely fiction of everybody on the run from the Germans. And I, it's, it's so weird. It's almost like a completely different movie that works in a completely different way. Yeah. Backing up, though, before we get to that, mm-hmm. one of the few problems that I have with this film, and when I say problem, that's, you know, strong wording, but is oh big problem, accents. Little problem is <laughs> how Charles Bronson's character, the Tunnel King, how the claustrophobia comes out of nowhere. And I understand from a storytelling perspective how they wanted it to be a surprise and how it comes out because he's feeling extremely tense in the moment because he's trying to escape and the other guy is trying to stop him and things like that. I I get it. However, there was not even a hint of it at all in the entire span of the movie. There was one incredibly subtle hint when one of the times the, the, the tunnel caved in, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that would happen to anybody. 
That would happen yeah, to anybody. Exactly. I mean, tunnel caves in on you. You panic. So, and that's again something that they talked about. Um, the 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 actual act uh, soldiers talked about in the, in the documentary is saying like that would happen. And like it's hard to show on the film just how much dirt is falling down on you because it's that's many feet underground. They say what was it thirty feet? I believe thirty feet. They yeah. went down. So that's a lot of dirt falling on you. So. They, they nearly lost some people there. But I found that that notwithstanding, he's going in and out of that tunnel, bouncing in and out like it's nothing up until that point. And I don't know how it occurred in real life. Whoever real mm-hmm. people he's trying to pretend to be, if in fact there were some that were like that. But I just found that from a story standpoint, it kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. But it's one of those things, like you said, it's the movie overall is so great. You just kind of hand yeah, wave it yeah, away. Exactly. Yeah. The other interesting point at, the, at this point is that um, one of the things that they did change was the season. Mm-hmm. A lot of the difficulties that these soldiers had was getting through the ground, which was freezing to the point of it took them forever just to get through that last batch when they were going up because the the ground was all frozen and then there was snow everywhere. So the soldiers were actually like freezing. Some of these guys were in the forest freezing to death. One of them was going nuts because he was, you know, he was freezing to death and, uh, and they were out in the middle of the forest. So that whole tension isn't in the movie, which is too bad because, again, I can appreciate what they were trying to do and how they needed the the seasons that they use kind of thing. But I think that it would have been even more gripping and suspenseful had they actually stuck to that winter setting. Mm-hmm. And going back myself, one of the points I, I kind of glossed over is, like I said, one of my favorite characters in the movie was Blythe the Forger. And his main story arc was he, you know, he was fantastically great at his job, but he was going blind mm-hmm. throughout the course of the story to the point where Bartlett refused to let him go on the escape because he was completely blind at that point. And that's where you see the friendship between him and uh, Henley, James Garner's character, that they had bonded over the course of being roommates and everything they've been through it's their friendship and specifically Blythe's storyline himself is one of the my favorite points in the entire film it's from that point where James Garner is saying he'll take him that it's their journey because the moment everybody comes out of the ground like you were saying it turns into a different type of show and everybody's going either in pairs or by themselves in different directions and you follow each of them through their little mini adventure but it's it's uh, it's those two it's it's Henley and uh, and uh, and Blythe that you really that, me personally I cared the most about them like mm-hmm. seeing where they're going and what's happening that was the most interesting story mm-hmm. Yeah, but like I said, once they escape from the actual prison, it's a very different sort of movie. Instead of it being this cat and mouse game in a friendly sort of way that, you know, like I said, everybody knew they were trying to escape. Everybody knew the guards were trying to capture them. But once they're actually out, the stakes are so much higher. And that's why I said especially for Bartlett because if he got captured again, he was just going to be executed. He wasn't going to go back to prison. And it's so tense in so many of those scenes, like the train where you have a couple of the different prisoners all on the train and different uh, disguises and passing off their passports and with the guards coming through and checking it. It was 
it again, it's one of those scenes where I've seen the movie so many times and yet I'm still tense as they're going through checking passports. I'm sure you've got this tagged. You're going to be talking about it. So I'll probably would. You're going to talk about the how he was actually caught, right? Go ahead. Earlier in the film, there's the coaching. And this is, again, mm-hmm. did you watch all of the documentaries on this? Actually, no. The the, oh, the copy I have is pretty much bare bones. Wow. The, it's worth picking up another copy just so that you can watch those. I know mm-hmm. you're a fan of this movie. Do yourself a favor. Pick up the Blu-ray. It's, it, it's money well spent. Anyway, so they talked to, again, a lot of the actual soldiers who discussed how they were forging in the passports and things like that and how some of them were pretty flimsy. Like the movie makes it seem a lot better than the reality was. Like some of these were a cursory glance is all that you're going to get and hope for. And they better not be looking too carefully because you're in big trouble. Cause again, you got to realize these are passports that were flimsily made on whatever they could find. Yeah. Well, they're imprisoned. So it, you can't expect that it's going to be a perfect for, forgery. But the other thing that was important is that of course they had to train all of these 250 soldiers with phrases in whatever language they were supposed to be from, the country they're supposed to be from. So some were getting taught some German, some were being taught some some French, and so forth. And so you have a lot of scenes where they are talking to... Um, to each of the people and training them with their, their languages and making sure that they're doing all right. And then as they're about to leave saying, Oh, and good luck in English or something along those lines mm-hmm. by reflex, the soldier turns around and answers in English and they tell them that's how you're going to get caught. That is the cheapest trick, but they will use it because it's a reflex. Don't let yourself get caught. And sure enough, <laughs> Bar- uh, it's Bartlett. And who was it that was with it? What, I can't remember who it was, but it's that other guy that they were there. They're on the border. They're going to make it. I think across. it was McDonald that was with him. Yeah, and uh, and sure enough, they 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 did theirs there because I believe they were speaking French. And uh, yes, and then they, they, they just as he's walking off, the German soldier says something in in English, and I believe it was something along the lines of "Good luck" good or luck. whatever. Yeah. And he turned around and answered in English. And that's how they got caught. The reality is, that's how, if I'm not mistaken, it's Bartlett. That's how Bartlett got caught. Yes, it was. In reality. And it's like, oh my goodness. Of course, I don't believe, and I wish I would have taken better notes as well. We're notorious for saying that, the both of us. But <laughs> the actual soldier, I can't remember what his name was. But yeah, that's, that's how he got caught. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine how much difficult it was in real life. Because like I said, in the movie, everybody's American, British, uh, Australian. In real life, there was Norwegians, there Spanish, French. So there was a number of different languages that they were all speaking to begin with. So to be able to come up with this plan and then, as you said, be trained in yet another language to escape, I can only imagine how complex that was. Well, again, when you're talking about they're taking 250 with them and you think oh my god they're taking the whole camp the camp had what ten thousand people twelve thousand uh, it was it was a huge camp it was yeah. either ten or twelve thousand i believe so there was all manner of nationalities in there so yeah it it, it was a hell of an organization mm-hmm. but of course the focal point of the entire escape has to be steve mcqueen's motorcycle chase <laughs> 
because of course there has to be a motorcycle chase. <laughs> this was something that was completely fabricated for the sake of the movie, but well, because he I'll told him that you. it had to be in yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, Steve McQueen's like, if you want me in this role, there has to be a motorcycle yeah. chase, <laughs> and it's just because of the way he was. And what's hilarious is he was such a great rider that in so many of the chase scenes, he's chasing himself. Because he was a better motorcycle driver than any of the stuntmen were on sets. <laughs> I'm thinking some of that is ego as well. Let me just. Do oh, it of course. Of yeah. You know, he saw one take and he's like, "Oh, I could do better than that. Get out of the way. Give me your helmet." <laughs> but the most iconic moment in the entire chase, when he's jumping over the fences at the border, he didn't do that because the insurance company wouldn't let him. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, you know, the escape plans where he said you have. Going by air, by sea, by land, by train, and out of the 76 that escape, 73 of them were captured. The only one that escaped in the film uh, was Danny, as well as his uh, second-in-command on the whole tunnel brigade. They managed to escape by boat, and then Sedgwick, the James Coburn character, actually made it out through France uh, using the resistance to help him get to Spain. And the other 73 were captured, and 50 of those 73 were killed before they got back to camp in the movie it's done basically in just one big group they truck them out to the middle of nowhere in reality yeah it was reality that 50 of these men were actually killed in their escape attempts it was more you know two here two there and as they say at the end of the movie the entire film the book everything is dedicated to the memory of those 50 men who legitimately gave their lives for this escape this is one of those again where it's it's hard watching it, the documentaries where they're talking to the actual um, soldiers who are there, because, I mean, this is still with them, mm-hmm. always will be with them. And one of them, they were talking to him and they were saying, and he was saying like, was it worth it? And he says, I don't think it was because like they know what happened, like Hitler Despite being told that they couldn't kill them all because that's what he wanted. He was like, kill them all. And they said, we can't because of the the, the rules for war and whatnot. They, mm-hmm. they just weren't allowed. And he said, fine, kill 50. And that's why 50 of them were killed because that's, it came right from Hitler. And so you had these, these Nazi soldiers killing them off. And some of them, they interviewed uh, one of them. And again, in the documentary, they were talking and he was a young guy at the time. And he was told like, you kill them or we kill you. This is your job. You're doing it. And he knew that if he didn't, somebody else would anyways. But he knew his entire life that it would come back to haunt him, that he'd get caught for it. And sure enough, he eventually did. And after the war, they tracked down everybody that was involved in these. Oh, yeah. And they... They were either killed or, or placed in prison for a long time. But, I mean, it was one of those things where it, it, it's easy for Hitler, who clearly out of his mind anyways, to just, oh, just kill 50 then. But for everybody else that was involved, anybody that had a conscience, even though it's war, you know it's wrong. And then you have the soldiers that have to deal with not just the ones who died, but the ones who survived are the ones that have to live with it. Not to mention, of course, the, the families and loved ones. But it... It was such a horrific thing. And then when you look at it from the film's perspective, they were saying how 
they had to put it in there. Like so much of the movie has this levity to it. Mm-hmm. It's inescapable because again, at the time and the type of film it was and this and that, but they just couldn't gloss over this. It had to be in the movie and it had to hit you square in the gut when it happens. Yeah, apparently there's a, a good book out there I need to track down that does delve into what happened after the war. Once the yeah. British went back for their revenge for the murders, uh, that's it's a story I want to know more about because, yeah. like you said, it's a movie that through so much of it is fun, but it definitely leaves you with the reminder that this is still based on actual lives. And if it wasn't for the the real men who gave their lives, you wouldn't be watching this movie. Well, the other thing to to keep in mind is again because, and this is something that they the, the real soldiers were saying as well. Because of that mentality of it's not just to get out and to get onto the front lines again and to fight this war, but to disrupt them, to cause them problems and all that. When you look at how much of a disruption this caused, it wound up saving lives elsewhere. In, mm-hmm. in a very big exactly. way. How much did they say that they diverted from the front lines? I was almost positive that it was like a hundred thousand. I think it was more. I think it was like three hundred thousand. I can't remember exactly. I thought a hundred, but it might be more. But yeah, it was yeah, over the course of months that they dedicated to finding these guys. A yeah. lot. So it made a huge impact in other battles in other areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the great escape. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I love it. I'll watch it regularly for the rest of my life yeah it's it's one of those classic movies that holds up just as well now as before it is something that unless someone is knows all of the the history they won't necessarily pick up on everything but they will pick up on what is important and and then you know honestly that's all that matters yeah for years it was just a great war movie that i liked until i learned more about it and then it became a great war movie that i liked and was incredibly important yeah it is yeah i agree and again I, i cannot stress this enough for anybody who's listening if you're going to pick up this film, pick up the Blu-ray that has the additional features on it. Those features are really well worth it. There's actually an audio commentary on it as, as well, but I haven't had the time to listen to that, which is odd for me. But I haven't had a chance to listen to that one. But mm-hmm. I will at some at some point just because, again, enjoy the movie so much. I want to hear those little things. Let's move on now. Let's talk about your happy chicken movie. We need to end on a happier note kind of thing. So, like I said, this was a huge happy movie about chicken murder. (laughs) (laughs) Only one chicken got actually murdered. And she she was a nice meal. Let's be honest. If you're going to go, it's not a bad way to go. Um, So, yeah, these are the guys that worked on the Wallace and Gromit shorts. This was actually their first feature length full film that they did and it was produced by dreamworks again at the time too dreamworks was doing some pretty cool stuff so Mm -hmm. it was a good fit and this is another one where not just repeat viewings really add a lot to it but also once you start watching the extras for this and you read up some of the stuff behind the scenes and things like that because i mean more so than a lot of other movies claymation movies there's a lot that goes into the making of these films, not oh, the yeah. least of which obviously being the, 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 in this case, the chickens. And they had all of these different um, models 
for for the chickens and things like that. And then they were using like silicone with latex covering for the bodies. And then the heads were the plasticine. And that's why each of them has a ruffle around their necks to hide that kind of things. <laughs> but there, there was so much work that goes like it's apparently it took a week to create three to four chickens. That That's a lot of freaking work. And then each of them has a somewhat of a kind of a, a skeleton inside with the rods and all that so that they can move them around and make them seem somewhat normal. This is actually, this was filmed in 20 frames per second versus the normal 24. And you can see it when you're watching, but that was just to save money because unlike a regular film where you're just shooting the film and that's that, this is every second there's a movement of some kind. Like they were talking about oh, more than every second. Yeah. The scene with Rocky and Ginger on the roof when they're sitting up there took five months to animate. <laughs> that's yeah. that's dedication. Like that that's one scene. The uh, the animators went through three thousand three hundred and seventy pounds of plasticine during the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff too that you find out afterwards about yet more similarities with the great escape kind of thing. Like this is of course a chicken coop that is it's run like a WW2 POW camp very much. It's even got the, the same kind of structures layout as with the great escape and things like that. The chickens actually meet in hut 17 to escape their escape plans. And that's a reference to the film style 17, which is a POW film directed by Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's even lines from it that are from another Stalag 17 movie, um, Aces in the Hole. So like, there's a lot of different references. And some of the things that weren't put in the show, because again, this more so again than normal films as well, a lot doesn't make it in because it's so bloody expensive and time consuming. One of the things that they were going to put in was that all of the chickens that were in this coop this is Mr. and Mrs. Tweedy's coop, of course, were actually supposed to be bad chickens from other coops that were sent here <laughs> to, to be like the great escape. Of course, that did make it in. But again, like I said at the beginning, as opposed to the great escape where they're tunneling out with Chicken Run, they try a variety of different escape methods and eventually come to the idea that they're going to go over the fence. And the reason that they choose that is because a rooster comes flying into the camp one night. And that is the one, of course, done voiced by Mel Gibson. And we won't go too much into our thoughts about him, but <laughs> leave it at that. And claims to have flown. And so the lead chicken, Ginger, decides that she's going to enlist them to teach the chickens how to fly because there is a... They, they they desperately need to get out, but the, the circus is looking for Rocky and wants him back. And the only way that he can stay away from them is if he helps them, teaching them to fly. Of course, it's a big con kind of thing until his wing is better. He's just milking it for all it's worth. But you wind up getting these fantastic scenes. Now, the, the film up until this point has been one great scene after another, but you get these great training scenes as well. Where he's, where they're doing the martial arts stuff, <laughs> which was because one of the animators was actually a, a sensei in a martial arts dojo. That's why they put that in there, <laughs> and the one arm push-ups and all kinds of different things. And there's all kinds of different training exercise he puts them through, and this continues, of course, until 
the Tweedies decide, well, Mrs. Tweedy decides she's had it with these minuscule profits <laughs> things and is going to start making chicken pot pies. And they get that massive, massive contraption, which was really hilarious when you read about all the work that went into that too. It's an insane amount of work building that thing. And, uh, and so now they really need to, to escape because they know that if they don't, they're going to be turned into to pies. One of the things I really like about the way the interactions between the chickens and the humans is they were all shot from the angle of the chicken's perspective, which of course, you know, chicken, it's a small little bird. So even the goofy comedic, you know, human characters had that sense of menace because every time you saw them, unless it was, you know, like a third party scene where the chickens weren't involved was that low angle shot that just naturally makes them seem so huge and menacing. It's, it was, it was a very subtle, but very impactful decision. They actually had to make different size tweeties just for that perspective thing mm-hmm. to, to really play with it. But yeah, well, yeah, you can't exactly move the camera around to the yeah. point when you're, when you're dealing with claymation. The the brilliance in in these fil- in this film again Peter Lord and Nick Perth is that wonderful British humor and a lot of the humor that you get is something that kids will laugh at but the adults will as well when you're looking at the problems that poor old Mister Tweedy. <laughs> <laughs> with these chickens and mumbling to himself that it's all in his head. It's all in my head. It's all me. <laughs> and, and you get the scenes again where the chickens have like the freaking binoculars and everything. <laughs> and then the switch scene. And then all of a sudden they're just pecking on the ground and you get a lot of different things like that. But that mind play with him is just freaking hysterical beginning to end because he is the unwitting villain in this. The real villain, of course, is Mrs. Tweety, but he mm-hmm. just is is the one that's trying to keep them in line. As far as the chickens are concerned. <laughs> he is enemy number one. <laughs> and and when you get to the end and he's having, he's trying to chase them and everything and you get the scenes, some of the scenes were cut where he was going to be doing more. Likewise with Mrs. Tweedy, you realize at the end, the real villain, of course, is when she takes over and, mm-hmm. and, and is chasing after them. But But going back again, like, the the acting in this show, like we're talking about the acting in in The Great Escape, the acting in Chicken Run, voice acting, of course, there is not a single weak voice among the bunch. I mean, even Gibson, for all my opinions of him, did a great job with, with Rocky. And of course, the the person who plays Ginger Julius Swahala does such an amazing job. And because of how much you and I both game, like a lot of people listening to this might not be gamers like we are. Like we watch a lot of the videos on game creation and things like that. And a lot of these people who work in voice um, voice work for, for animated films, you get a lot of these same people that are now doing a lot of games as well because there's a lot more credibility in that work than there used to be. And it's fun listening and watching more and delving into the voice work kind of thing. And you really get to appreciate the work that goes into it. And I've been, I've, I've gotten on that kick now for a little while. I've really, (laughs) I, and part of it is because I love doing these podcasts. I mean, we've been podcasting together for years now, so it's no 
secret. Obviously, you love doing it too. And the 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 all of the production work that goes into it and the editing, yeah, it's long and can be a pain in the butt sometimes. But I actually really enjoy that kind of stuff. And so. I've really kind of enjoyed watching how the pros do in it. And I have a lot of respect for people who do voice work. Like I hate my freaking voice, but these people like (laughs) I love hearing them do all this other stuff. And I've been watching different podcasts with some of these guys and different video casts and things like that. Like all the guys, the people who worked on the clone wars, which I've, we just finished watching. Like I was telling you your life for the last couple of weeks. Yes, but it's so freaking good. And it's one of those, again, where you're looking at the voice work that was done and you go like, my God, like freaking Arnold is a genius who does Obi-Wan and, and all of these other people. So when I watch this stuff now, and it's not something that I thought about quite as much before, but now whenever I rewatch these shows, I really pick up on the voice work a lot more. And this was one of those where everyone, right down to the freaking rats, were the rats were fantastic. Amazing in every single scene. There wasn't a single voice that didn't stand out that wasn't spectacular. The thing I enjoy is since it's this animated movie and everything is you know blown up to such proportions, you could have characters like Fowler, the 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 yeah. old British rooster who was taken so far in the extreme of that character. I can only imagine how enjoyable that was the to do the God, voice acting yeah. for him. But it, given the setup of the movie and the way it is, it works perfectly for what they were trying to accomplish. Well, Miranda Richardson doing Mrs. Tweedy. Mm-hmm. That, God, that character is so over-the-top villainous that it must have been a joy to record yeah. those seeds. <laughs> Just to let loose and be this evil, conniving bitch. And she pulls it off. Beautifully. And then, of course, you have all of the chickens like Babs. How can you not love freaking Babs? <laughs> God, she's fantastic. And, of course, uh, Bunty as well. Just so cool. So each of these characters gets to shine. And each of the, not just the voice actors, but the characters as well at different points in the film. It's the majority of the film, of course, is is Ginger and Rocky. And they're, they're, they're wanting to escape. But... It's never done in such a way that those characters steal attention from any of the others, whether it is the Tweeties, either one of them, whether it is Babs or Bunty or whatever. Those, anytime those characters have their moment in the suns and the rats, the freaking rats, whenever they're there, steal the scenes as well. And I really dig that because you have your main actors, you, you can follow the story along, but then all of these others are still very memorable as well. Yeah, you get the feeling that because when you have those group scenes, everybody's pretty much equal. The only reason we see Ginger and Rocky as the main characters are they're the ones we spend the most time with when they're away from the group. Like You get the feeling that there could have been an equally great movie if we'd followed the rats or followed some of the other chickens instead of the Ginger and Rocky. Interestingly enough, they actually wanted to use crows mocking them along the way. But then decided to go with the rats later on because it'd be easier to use them as the pilferers that go. Speaking of scavengers like <laughs> James Gardner, that's where that is. The, these characters that can go and get whatever is needed kind of thing. The um, Again, going to the pie machine, then you have that, that fantastic scene with Ginger, who is going to be the first pie made. And to the point of being buckled 
upside down as, <laughs> as well, which was great. And Rocky going to her rescue. Of course, he doesn't really rescue her. She's the one that rescues him. <laughs> but you have those great scenes that one of them was cut, but the other one is in there. That is the the Indiana Jones with the hat underneath the door mm-hmm. and she just snatches it. I swear to God, every time I see that, I get a little <laughs> inside. There's just, I just, <laughs> it makes me so freaking happy whenever I see that. There was one of the other pie machine sequences that was actually, it was supposed to be in, but they never use it was, um, Rocky comes face to face with a chicken skeleton inside of the machine. And, uh, and it's supposed to be like the Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the line that he uses, they bought a used, used machine. How cheap is that? <laughs> but yeah, the door coming down is great. And then that that entire sequence is so freaking tense and all that. And yet so freaking hilarious. And it's not until it pulls back that you see that he, he fell into every goddamn yeah. pie. <laughs> it's such a stereotypical slapstick gag, but, but again, it works. It works. But what's astonishing about that scene is the animation involved. Oh my God. If that movie had been made today, they just would have CGI'd it. Yeah. But in what, 1997, I think was when they were started working on the movie, even though it didn't come out until 2000. Like that was stop motion animation for all those moving parts, the chickens <laughs> included. It's astonishing. It's an insane amount of work. I, yeah, you, you have to respect just how much went into that. Because like, I'm a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen. And uh, there was a great documentary about him on Netflix. I think it got pulled off, unfortunately. But it went into detail of every movie he made and the amount of work involved. The amount of work he had just to animate one character that wasn't even on screen for out, throughout an entire film was insane. And technology really didn't change in the stop motion industry between Harryhausen and Chicken Run. So it's it blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So from there now, Rocky's wing actually heals. He realizes that he's got to take off because there's no way he can obviously teach them how to fly. You get the big reveal where Ginger figures out where she's got the bottom part of the poster that he was actually shot out of a cannon. That was so brilliantly done. Like that's one of those scenes when she's walking in the rain and she's got that piece of paper and she puts it underneath the bottom that she'd been, the poster that they had that, like, and I, I'm not trying to put this too high on a pedestal. Like, there's a lot of movies that I really love, but a great scene is a great scene. I don't care what movie it's from. And when I look back at, you know, pivotal scenes in movies that have stuck with me kind of thing, that's one of them, actually. It, it's a freaking chicken run, but it is. That when she lays that poster and you realize it was a canon, it was so well done. And I, I again, I love it. It's something we talk about so often that... You can do something that everybody sees coming. You know it's going to happen. But if you execute it properly, it's still going to have impact. Like, obviously, we knew Rocky couldn't fly. We knew he was hiding a secret. We didn't know he was shot out of a cannon, per se. So, of course, that reveal was important for the characters. It was very well shot, very well animated. And like you said, we knew something was coming. It was just a matter of, oh, it's a cannon. But the general feeling of that scene came across despite that. Yeah, because so much, so much is invested in this, not with the damn chickens, but with us. <laughs> it's so much is invested in those chickens getting out and you know, they're not going to be able to, but it's when you realize how soul crushing it is for Ginger at that moment 
and then all of the others, you feel it. Again, it's a little freaking plasticine chicken, but it's so well done that you feel it. Of course, Ginger doesn't stay down for long, as is not her character. And that's when she hatches up the plan. Oh, God, that's a bad pun. Oh, she hatches twice. up the plan. That's twice. Yeah, no, but you didn't say anything on the first one, so it doesn't count. <laughs> you were in your intro. I didn't want to interrupt. I wrote that down and I said, oh, he's going to have something to say about that. If, if it wasn't your, your fabled intro that, you know, is so super serious, I would have booed. Don't mock my intros. Oh, your intros are great. Uh, okay. But I know that if goes. I ever interrupt one of them, you're, the wrath of hell is going to come down. <laughs> as long as we've established that. <laughs> Anyways, so that's when the plan comes up to build an actual aircraft that they're going to use. Now, the funny thing here too, is that the whole thing with Fowler's military service is actually not entirely unprecedented. They said (laughs) there's actual (laughs) records of chickens being mascots kind of things in different camps and different things. So the idea that he would have been this mascot for this, 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 these pilots or whatever, it actually makes a little bit of sense. But I love that you spend the entirety of the movie believing that he piloted a craft and it's, you've got talking chickens trying to escape. <laughs> yeah, so the idea that there's a, a flying rooster, Hey, it makes sense. He was in the war. That's that. So when he drops that line of, don't be preposterous, like I'm a chicken, I can't fly. (laughs) It is so funny every time he drops that line that I crack up laughing. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen this. It's just so freaking funny. And it goes into how that character had been built up with all of his bravado and his high standing and his high moral qualities and his very Britishness and just for him to completely deadpan deliver that. Like oh, yeah. there is no comedy in his delivery just nails it. Like you said, it's, it's that very British sense of humor that just when it hits, it hits hard. <laughs> and it's funny because you hear him and how he's addressing them. And it's almost like, wait, you thought I flew? What is wrong with you people? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not it's, possible. It's not him. That's funny. It's all the other <laughs> idiot chickens. <laughs> So, but again, the, by now we've got the, 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 the plane has been built and it's freaking amazing looking. The race to finish building this thing is because the pie machine that was busted up when Ginger and Rocky escape is finally now working. And this is where you have that rush, which again, very much like the great escape where they're taking panels off of different things and they're really working as hard as they can to get this going as fast as they can. Meanwhile, Rocky's freaking on his little unicycle there uh, or tricycle thing going around the countryside. And, and you have that moment where he realizes that he has to go back. There was actually, I don't know if it was a cut scene, how far it made it into production, but there was one scene where he and Ginger actually did the Steve McQueen thing over the fence kind of thing mm-hmm. on the tricycle, but they didn't put that in. And I thought, Oh, they should have, that would yeah, have been absolutely. freaking brilliant. But of course he comes back just in time to, to help them, get the plane off the ground. And as is only the case in this type of animated show, the plane does fly. They do get Fowler to, of course, to pilot Why wouldn't it. it? <laughs> of course it's got massive flappy wings. 
it's, it's, it's bound to fly. It's trailing 300 pounds of chicken. But of when, it flies. It, when it takes off, there's a little part of you that's excited. I don't care how old you are. <laughs> it's like E.T. Yep. when Elliot takes off. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And not just that, but it's trailing Mrs. Tweedy with it as well. <laughs> so then you have... Again, it's one of those where, I mean, there's so many movies that you watch and you watch the, the climactic moments at the end and think, eh, could have been better or, oh, I would have done this differently or whatever. That scene with Ginger on the, the freaking Christmas lights with Mrs. Tweedy, who is looking psychotic by this point, and the, you think that she lost her head and cut the the, the 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 Christmas lights. It is the perfect payoff for this crazy movie. Like I cannot think of a better way to end that show. Well it's kind of look back to our last episode when we were talking about horns, where they took the movie so far so soon that you need to keep building upon that, making it bigger and crazier as you go along to have that climax. And of course they they jumped every shark on the planet to get there, whereas the, you have that same ramping up here, but it's done much more subtly. You know, yeah. you had the the pie scene, which was great, and then the flying scene, which was better, and then this completely ridiculous moment, but it fits in with the progression of the action in the film, and it's a suitable climax given the – craziness we'd seen before not just that too but they limit it to those two i mean sure rocky's on the other end pelting her with eggs and whatnot and you have the rest of the group that are keeping the craft in the air but it's very very much ginger and mrs tweedy and that's important because you're streamlining that action so that these are the impacted characters Yes, everybody else's as well but in your mind those are the ones that you're watching and it's important as well because in so many movies, it's – and like everything else, whether it's you know TV or whatever, it's always the man that's a hero kind of thing. It's very rare you see a very strong female lead character. We're seeing more of it as, as time goes on. We need, we need to see more of it. But here is this insanely strong female character that's intelligent and that's caring and that's everything else and yet still has a sensitive side that you see a little bit here and there with her and Rocky kind of thing so when you see this heroic freaking moment that is unbelievably badass <laughs> you're cheering and it's great and, and it is that is one of the movies reasons that I also loved watching these with my girls when they were young because it was this very powerful female lead character that at the end crushes it and it was just great i loved it yeah so and of course the ending after that is they do find their little island that they're going to all live on happily ever after kind of thing and it's basically the happily ever after payoff that you expect at the end of this type of show didn't bother me at the at all that it was hokey they ended with of course the which came first chicken or the egg hokey business but it it was silly fun by that point, and I every time I watch it, I don't care. I enjoy it. Yeah, it's it it's what it was deserving of. Yeah, you you, you can't be upset when what's functionally a children's movie ends at they lived happily ever yeah, after. Yeah, and you want it. I don't care if it's a kids show. Yeah. As an adult, you want it too. <laughs> so that is 
Chicken Run and the Great Escapes. Now, a lot of people can will... I, can I mention something real oh, quick? Oh, of course. Because I've been laughing about this for the last 15 minutes now. I have, you know, the, the Wikipedia page up with, like, the cast listing. Right. And on Wikipedia, they describe Mr. Tweedy as henpecked. <laughs> Perfectly accurate description. <laughs> oh, but that pun is all right, but mine aren't. Only because you used the hatch twice. I had to put that in there. All right, that's true. That's true. All right. Otherwise, I just would have giggled silently to myself the whole time. <laughs> so, like I said at the beginning, for me, this is one of the ones that when I think of a, a film that was influenced, this is towards the top of my list. There are a lot of other ones, of course, but for a lot of different reasons. Again, like you said initially, too, the Chicken or chicken Room movie was bypassed by a lot of people. And I'm, it disappoints me to think that because I think that it deserves repeated watching, not just from kids, but from adults as well. It's just such a phenomenal movie. And when I think of... Steve McQueen bouncing that ball off the walls in solitary. Inevitably, I have to think of Ginger doing the same thing. That's pretty telling. So that's going to wrap up the show. Thank you very much for joining us. I do apologize that it took this long to get it out. That is entirely my fault and we will work harder at being more on schedule we actually have a really good next episode where we're going to be talking about three different films that got some oscar nominations and i'm really looking forward to getting your opinions on them because there was a tweet that you put out on one of them that i went oh no you didn't <laughs> so i'm looking forward to arguing about i didn't that. say it was bad i didn't say i didn't like it there was some snippiness that i did not appreciate <laughs> <laughs> with that make sure to stop by the site at popcornronin.com leave us your thoughts on these movies and what you thought about them and of course you can find us as well on iTunes and Stitcher leave us some comments there and like I said we will see you in a couple of weeks for that fantastic Oscars episode TV, movie, and anime reviews, please make certain to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their Comic Book Informer podcast, as well as For the Lore, a weekly gaming podcast. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.